Well, you probably have noticed that we live in a society where virtual relationships are being substituted for real ones. And people are more connected than ever, but at the same time, they're growing further and further apart relationally. To be a friend doesn't mean the same thing that it used to. To be liked doesn't mean what it used to. To have someone follow you does not mean the same thing that it used to. You can just like someone, you can acquire a friend with two clicks of a mouse nowadays, and so it's a very, very different experience. You can put a whole bunch of hearts on a, on a posting or on a text, and you know, nobody does just like one heart anymore. It's like six hearts. Or if you really liked it, you might put like a, a get a dozen hearts on there. It's just not the same as it used to be. Friends and followers, they, they're um, not what we traditionally think of. Have you ever gone to a restaurant and you see a couple there sitting across the table from one another? But they're not even communicating to each other. Sometimes whole families do this. They're looking into their smartphones, right? Maybe they're texting each other. I don't know. I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. Might be some virtual communication going on. One restaurant in the UK, it's called uh, Frankie and Benny's. They actually began offering free food to children if their parents would not use their phone during the meal. And so they, they called it a no phone zone and they had them turn in their phones because they wanted the family to have real, authentic communication during the meal. And I, I, I think that's kind of a cool idea. Because although we're more connected than ever, we're growing further and further apart relationally. Actress Lily Tomlin said, we're all in this alone. <laughs> That's kind of what it feels like sometimes in society, doesn't it? So, um, Dr. Vivek Murthy, he was the Surgeon General in the Obama administration, and now he was just recently appointed also in the Biden administration. And he said that as a practicing physician, the most common illness he was dealing with was not heart disease or diabetes, but loneliness. Loneliness, he said, uh, stemming from a lack of meaning, a lack of self-worth, and a lack of social connection. He said that loneliness is actually a threat to public health. And he cited some statistics that said the reduction in lifespan associated with loneliness is greater than 15 years. It's greater than the reduction in lifespan from smoking and uh, from smoking 15 cigarettes a day. And it's greater than the reduction in lifespan from obesity. He said it has a tremendous impact on people. And he said it also impacts productivity in the workplace and the performance of children in schools. Now, Dr. Murthy said this. He said, when you look at all the data on loneliness, you're left with the inescapable conclusion that we need each other. We are fundamentally social creatures. Now, I would agree strongly with that. What I wouldn't agree with is he attributed this need to our evolutionary roots. I wouldn't agree with that, but I do agree with this statement. But we know the reason we're social creatures is because our God is a relational God and we're made in the image of God. And so we're made to be relational beings. We're made to be in community with one another. So as we continue our series this morning, 
called Living Hope. It's a study of the books of First and Second Peter. We're going to be looking at relationships, specifically our relationships with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And as we work through this text, there's a question that I want you to keep in mind, and it's this. I just passed it up, didn't I? We'll get with it. See, I would have normally done that in the first service, but not the second. <laughs> so here's the question. Are my relationships with other believers an effective measure of my spiritual maturity? Think about that. Are my relationships with fellow believers an effective measure of my spiritual maturity? We're going to want to look at that. And so with that in mind, the message this morning is called Loving One Another. And the text will be 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, through chapter 2, verse 3. And I've broken it down into three parts. The first is the essence of love in chapter 1, verse 22. Secondly, the basis of love in chapter 1, verses 23 through 25. And then finally, the practice of love in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. So it, it spans two chapters, but it's a very short text. And so I'd like to start by reading through it with you. So 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 22. It says, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourself of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. That's our text this morning. And I want to begin in verse 22 by looking at the essence of love. And in teeing this up, I just want to recap where we've been in this book so far. Because we're still in the first chapter. Peter is writing this letter to Christians who were suffering. They had been driven from their homes because of their faith. And they were scattered across the Asian continent. And so he writes this letter to encourage them in their faith. And you'll find that there's a structure to this letter. One point builds upon another, which builds upon another. And so he'll make a profound statement. Then he'll say, therefore. And then he'll add some more. And he'll say, therefore. We're going to get a couple layers of that this morning. So he first reminds us, believers have a future glory that is beyond our ability even to imagine. Yet, for now, we suffer trials of all kinds. And he says in verse 7 that these trials have come so that our faith of greater worth than gold may be proved genuine when Jesus Christ is revealed. There's a purpose for the trials. And he says that the prophets and even the angels long to look into this salvation that has now been revealed to you and me. And he says beginning in verse 13, therefore, in light of the salvation, in light of this future glory that believers have. He says, therefore, prepare your minds for action and be self-controlled. 
Set your hope fully on the grace that is to be given to you when Christ is revealed. And he also says, be holy. We spent a week focusing on that. Be set apart from the world. He says in verse 19, because you have been redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. And so then we come to verse 22. And he takes what he's already said and he adds another layer to it. He adds another thought. He says, now that you have purified yourself by obeying the truth. In other words, now that you are saved, he says, so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. Now this is the main point. The main point in this passage is to have sincere love for your brothers and sisters in Christ, for fellow believers. This is the main point. And it's not speaking of love for people in general. It's not speaking of love for the lost. It's not speaking about those out there. It's speaking about these people right here, specifically, your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not that the lost aren't important to God or all those other things, but this passage, I want to be real clear, it's dealing with brothers and sisters in Christ, fellow believers. It emphasizes it again later in a verse where it says, love one another. He's speaking to a church. And so, again, not love them out there, but love those in here within the body of Christ. Here's why. Here's why he focuses on that, I believe. Because God knows that with all of the chaos going on in the world out there, Christians have a tendency to get all riled up and turn their guns on each other. See, this was happening with the believers scattered throughout the Asian continent. And it's happening with believers in the United States. And it's even happening with some believers here at Riverside. God knows this is a tendency. And so he warns us about this. I've never seen more polarization and division in the church in my lifetime than what I've seen in the last two years. You've probably seen it. You've experienced it. Just when the church should be banding together and loving and supporting one another more than ever. What's happened? There's infighting over things like the pandemic and masks or the election or racial tensions and it It's like this perfect storm that has believers battling one another. And so this message is to us too. God says with all of that chaos going on out there in the world, the thing you need to focus on is loving one another here within the church. Not exclusive of loving the lost, but it's a a key priority. So, notice what it says in verse 22. It says, have sincere love for your brothers. Now, again, over the last couple years, I thought there was genuine love for one another, but in some cases, a little diversity or adversity rather showed that it wasn't mature love because it soon led to division. And that's been kind of sad to see. It didn't stand the test of adversity. So he says, have sincere love Now, you might just underline that word sincere. It means real, authentic, not fake. Have sincere love for your brothers. There's nothing worse than fake love. Love that puts on a mask and pretends. It's kind of like plastic fruit. 
My grandmother used to have a bowl of plastic fruit on her coffee table. And as a little boy, I'd look at that. And the apples and the peaches and the grapes in particular look so real and tasty and, and tempting. And so I'd reach out for it, but then I'd pick it up and it's like, oh, it's fake. It's plastic. This fruit isn't going to nourish anybody. This stuff will make you sick. Well, so too with fake love. It's not going to nourish anybody. It will make people sick. You know there was a disciple who had insincere love. Judas, right? His love was insincere. When Mary poured out the expensive perfume to anoint the feet of Jesus before his burial, he said, what a waste. This money could have been given to the poor. He pretended like he had this deep love for the poor. But John's gospel tells us he didn't care at all about the poor. He was stealing from the money bag and he wanted to keep that money for himself. It was insincere love. And then later on, when he betrayed the Lord Jesus, how did he do it? With a kiss. Yeah, a sign of affection. It was insincere love. Matthew Henry said this, he said, hypocrisy is to do the devil's work in God's uniform. Think about that. Hypocrisy, it literally means to wear a mask like an actor, pretend that we're somebody or something that we're not. It's fake. So we have to have a sincere love for our brothers and sisters in Christ, first of all. Now look at the second half of verse 22. It says, love one another deeply from the heart. Now, here's the thing about this phrase. In Greek, it's an imperative. And you know what that means? It's a command. It's a command. God is commanding us to love one another deeply from the heart. Wait a minute. Can he even do that? Can he command somebody to love someone else? That seems odd. When, when Deborah and I first met, we were in high school, and she was a junior, and I was a senior, and she would come into my calculus class now and then and talk with my teacher, Mrs. Hinkle, and I would take notice of her every time. Now, what if I had gone up to her and said, Deborah, I commend you to love me. <laughs> How would that have gone over? Not very well. I'm thankful it was her that commanded me to love her. <laughs> okay, maybe she didn't with words, but she definitely commanded my attention. <laughs> it worked. But you wouldn't do such a thing, right? So then how can God command us to love others? It's not like we can just fabricate these feelings or this emotion of love. So how can he command us to do it? Simple. The love God's talking about here is not rooted in feelings or emotion. It's rooted in an act of the will. It's a choice that we make, and we have the capacity to do so. Let me explain. There's actually two different words used for love in this passage. In verse 22, the first is where he speaks of a sincere love for the brothers. That's the word Philadelphia. It means brotherly love. It involves affection for one another, feelings. Have a sincere love for the brothers. That kind of love is different than what it says next, where it is a command. It's, he says, love one another deeply from the heart. 
that is a different word. That's agapio, or you might know agape love. That is a divine, godlike, sacrificial love. It has nothing to do with feelings or emotions. It's an act of the will. It's a choice that we make. So verse 22 is saying, I command you to love like God loves, sacrificially, with a pure heart. That's what it's saying. And every one of us who've been saved are capable of loving in that way. Now, this agape love that God calls us to, it is a higher form of love. And, get this, it's only possible once we have been saved. It's only possible for believers. Notice what verse 22 says. It says, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, now that you have been saved, I command you to love others with a God-like love. And the reason I say it's only possible for those who have been saved, 1 John 4, 7 and 8, you're probably familiar with that passage. Part of it says this, love, agape love, comes from God. And everyone who loves with agape love has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is agape love. It comes from God. It's actually a fruit of the Spirit in Galatians where it says love, joy, peace. That's agape love. So while an unbeliever can demonstrate forms of sacrificial love, an unbeliever can't demonstrate this higher form of divine, godlike love. It can only come through a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's a work that the Spirit produces in us once God has changed our heart. So loving in this way means that we must decide to show love to people. Even, here's the hard part, even when we're hurt by them. Think about what God did. That's the kind of love that God showed to us. For God so loved the world with an agape love that he sent his one and only son. What did the world do to his son? They killed him. And that hurt God. Yet, he loved anyway. And we're called to do the same. To love people even when they hurt us. In fact, I would say this. The best reflection, I'm one behind on the slides, here we go. The best reflection of God's love is to demonstrate love deeply to someone who has hurt us. Think about that. You want to be God-like? Seek out someone who's hurt you and love them deeply. Have you ever been hurt by someone in church? I have. And I've hurt people. I have. Whether intentional or not, we've probably all been hurt by somebody in church. Maybe it was something they said or did, or maybe it was something they should have said or done, and they didn't. And it hurts us. How did you respond? Do you still have a relationship with them today? Are you loving them? Or did you say, that's, that's where I draw the line. You, you hurt me like that. We're through. I'm out. Done. And separate yourself relationally from them. It's very common to do so. So think about some of those relationships. 
uh, ones where you've been hurt. And consider, what step of love do I need to take toward that person today, this week, in order to love them with the type of love that God commands me to exercise? He commands you to take that person who's hurt you and act in love toward them, love them deeply. So what would that require? See, I've, I've had people tell me that they will always love me and my family and the entire congregation at Riverside only to turn around and leave the church in a huff just a couple weeks later. But that was last month. <laughs> is that agape love? I don't feel like it is. I don't think so. I love you, but I can't worship with you. I can't be in fellowship with you. I can't stand you. I can't be around you. That doesn't feel like agape love to me. Let me read you a portion of 1 Corinthians 13 in Eugene Peterson's translation, or it's actually a paraphrase called The Message. It says, if I speak with human eloquence and angelic ecstasy, but don't, but don't have love, I'm nothing but the creaking of an old rusty gate. If I speak God's word with power, revealing all his mysteries and making everything as plain as day, and if I have faith that says to a mountain, jump, and it jumps, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. If I give everything I own to the poor and even go to the stake to be burned as a martyr, but I don't have love, I've gotten nowhere. So no matter what I say, what I believe, and what I do, I'm bankrupt without love, agape love. That's God's word. So we're commanded to love our brothers with a God-like love. It's not rooted in emotion or feelings, but in action. A decision, an action of the will. We must choose to do it, even if we don't feel like it. That's the essence of love that, that is spoken of in this passage. So that's the essence of love. Let's look at the basis of love. In uh, verses 23 through 25, it says, For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. Notice how it begins, For you have been born again. When you were born again, if you've been born again, when you were born again, you entered into a relationship with God, a personal relationship. He's not just your creator, now he's your father, and you're his child. There's a love relationship there. But you're not the only one. See, other people have been born into that relationship with God as well. So you share the same father, which means what? You're brothers and sisters in Christ. You have a relationship with one another. It says, for you have been born again, and I would add, into a spiritual family. And God calls it the church. You've heard the saying, blood is thicker than water. What does that mean? Well, the idea is that relationships and, and loyalties within families should be stronger than any other. Because you share the same mother and father. You share the same blood, your blood relatives. But I believe brothers and sisters in Christ have an even deeper bond. They share the same blood too. See, they share the blood of Christ, the blood of the covenant that was poured out for them. They're blood relatives in Christ. And verses 18 and 19 of, of chapter 1 say, speak of the precious and the priceless blood of Christ. That's what binds us together 
as a church family. And, and there should be love within that family. And you may find it easy to love Jesus when you think of who he is and all that he's done for you. I mean, I'm daily in awe of that. But you probably find it a lot harder to love his kids when you think of who they are and what they've done, right? Yet, Jesus said this, whatever you do for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you do for me. And whatever you don't do for them, you don't do for me. So when you're not loving your brothers and sisters in Christ, you're not loving Christ. Have you ever thought of it that way? That's strong, but it's the truth. That's how closely God identifies with those who are saved, who are his children. If you don't love them, you're not loving him. Take a look around at some of your brothers and sisters. Look to your right. That way. Look to your left. Look in front. Look behind you. There's probably some people here that you really like. Amen? I hope. One or two. (laughs) There's probably some that you don't like so much. There might even be a few that have hurt you. Maybe when you look at them, you just recoil internally. You ever feel that? No? (laughs) I do. (laughs) Tell me your secret. (laughs) No. But here's the thing. You don't have to like them. You don't have to have feelings and emotions and affection for them. Oh, you don't have to, but you do have to love them. You have to love them deeply and from the heart. Because Jesus said, if you don't love them, you're not loving me. And he commanded us to do it. He said this in in the Gospel of John, if you love me, you will obey what I command. What does he command? He commands us to love these guys sitting next to us, our brothers and sisters in Christ. So we're saved into a spiritual family. But beyond even that, our salvation should change our relationship with everyone around us. All of our relationships should be changed. Hudson Taylor, he was a great missionary to China, and he said this, I love it. If your father and mother, your sister and brother, if the very cat and dog in a house are not the better and happier for your being a Christian, it's questionable whether you really are or not. Our salvation should change every relationship we have because God and his truth informs and transforms those relationships in our lives. So when we've been saved, he doesn't just sprinkle us with his love. He says he pours it into our hearts. He pours it out. It's overflowing. You have abundant love. And once you experience the love of God, it frees you up out of the abundance of that to love other people. Being saved doesn't make us blind to the faults of others, but it gives us the grace to overlook them. That's what we're called to do. Well, take, take a look at the second half of verse 23. It says that our new birth is through the living and enduring word of God. Now, we know that we're saved by the blood of Christ, but it's through the word of God, the Bible. 
we're saved through the Bible. Scripture says faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. And so it's, it's this word which is preserved for us. It's our message of salvation. Maybe it was communicated to you in written form or verbally, but it's the word of God that saves us. But then Peter goes on to elaborate on this word of God and he, what he's doing in verses 24 and 25, he's quoting a passage from Isaiah 40, verses six through eight. Take a look at what he says. He says, for all men are like grass and their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. So, what does this have to do with the central theme of having sincere love for one another? I, I wondered that myself. As I'm studying the text, I'll write my own questions down. What does this have to do with the, <laughs> with the sincere love for one another? The, the word enduring the grass, withering, and all of that? Well, it is connected. And here's the point I think it's making. We're, we're saved when we obeyed the word of truth. It said that, um, I think it was back around verse 19, it said that we're saved when we obeyed the word of truth. But this same word of God that saved us also tells us that we're to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we need to obey that truth just as much as we obeyed the truth of the gospel which saved us. Whatever else we might invest our time in doing will pass away. But obedience to the enduring word of God will last. All of those other pursuits, they're not going to last. Like the flowers and the grass, they wither. There's, there's another quote that I, I really like, and I think it, it, it speaks to verses 24 and 25 very well. You're probably familiar with the quote, but you might not be familiar with the man who, who spoke the quote. It comes from the British missionary uh, Charles Thomas Studd or C.T. Stud. That's a good name, isn't it? <laughs> His friend just called him the Stud. <laughs> well, here's what the Stud said. He said, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Most of you probably heard that, right? That comes from the Stud. <laughs> now you know. What a Stud. It's so true. And does that not sum up this quote of Isaiah that Peter is showing in verses 24 and 25, what he's put in there? None of this other stuff will last, guys. Only what's done for Christ will last. So the same word that commands us, well, the same word that is the message of salvation that we, that we obeyed and were saved, that same word commands us to love one another. So, the basis for our love is that we're born again into a spiritual family. And God cares deeply about that spiritual family. We have brothers and sisters in Christ. And the God that saves us commands us to love one another. When we do so, we're doing it for him. And when we don't, we're not loving him. So that's the basis of our love. Let's look at the, the practice of our love in, in chapter 2. This is where it gets even more practical. Peter writes, Therefore, rid yourself of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. It starts once again with the word therefore. Here's another layer. 
therefore, and, and like I said, it's there for a reason. What is, what is it there for? It's referring back to the previous verses that say, and, and it's saying in essence, in light of the command to love, in light of the fact that you are born again, that you're saved, you must rid yourself of these things which run contrary to love. Malice is a desire to harm another person. That's what malice is. It's evil. Deceit is misrepresenting the truth to another person, either by what you say or what you do. What else does it have here? Deceit, it, it is, it's, it's hypocrisy. Some uh, translations say hypocrisy. Um, and again, that's to wear a mask. Envy, that's, that's when you get all worked up when you see something good happen to somebody else because you want it for yourself. You're opposed to good things that happen to other people. Slander is making false accusations against somebody so as to hurt them. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. Notice what all of these have in common. They're directed at other people for ourselves. This is not sacrificial love. This is selfishness and evil. And God says, if you're going to love each other deeply and from the heart with a God-like sacrificial love, you got to get rid of this stuff. Because this is the polar opposite, the antithesis of love. So Peter writes, rid yourself of them. Literally, it means strip them off. Get rid of them. Deceit, malice, slander, hypocrisy. It, it, it's kind of like the language of Ephesians 4, 22 and 24, where it says, put off and put on. Put off your old self, which is being corrupted, and put on your new self. Your new self, your new attitude, your new, your new ambitions, your new motives in Christ. See, we're created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness, Ephesians says. We have to put on our new stuff, our new self. And then in verse 2, it says, Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. The Bible is the word of God. And it's described here as pure spiritual milk. It brings about nourishment, growth, and maturity. And we're to crave it. Any day now, my, my daughter is expected to give birth to our first grandbaby. And I don't know if I'm uh, ready to be called a grandpa yet. I don't know, that's going to a whole nother level. You're going to have to put up with grandbaby pictures and all the PowerPoint presentations. No, I'm not going to do that. Okay, sometimes. <laughs> but one of the things I find cool is that in the first few days after a baby is born, a mother's milk is referred to as colostrum. And it contains high levels of, of antibodies and white blood cells which protect a, a baby from infection and disease as it leaves the security of the womb and comes out into this world of ours. It's marvelous the way this colostrum is engineered. And so it also has real high content of vitamins, and, and, and that's in the first few days. But then in days 5 through 14, the milk changes in both content and volume to meet the changing needs of the baby. And now it's called transitional milk. 
and it has new things that the baby needs in different proportions as the baby grows, just five days old. And so transitional milk, but then in the four-week period, it changes again, and it's referred to as mature milk. I like that. It's rich in protein, sugar, vitamins, and minerals, plus all kinds of other components like hormones and growth factors and enzymes and, 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 and white blood cells. And it's everything the baby needs to support healthy growth and development. God knew what he was doing when he designed mother's milk, didn't he? Can you imagine? It just all by itself changes from one form to another. On day five, on, on week four, it changes to meet the needs of the baby. God also knew what he was doing when he put together his word for us. It has what we need to grow up and mature in Christ. And this passage says you should crave this like pure spiritual milk because it nourishes our soul. It causes us to grow. Yet, yet... The Apostle Paul, he's writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3, and he says this. He says, brothers and sisters, I could not address you as spiritually, as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. Indeed, you still are not ready. You're still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? So he's, he's, he's scolding them because they haven't grown up. Imagine a 10-year-old still nursing on his mother. Well, he's only 120 months. <laughs> That's sick. <laughs> he's a 10-year-old. He needs solid food. He should be eating corn on the cob, meat. Well, so too for believers. We need to crave and take in that pure spiritual milk so that we grow up and we move on to other things. Not just these simple truths, but God's word has more depth and more content for us as our soul grows and and our mind grows in understanding. So he said that these believers are immature. They still needed milk. What was the sign of their immaturity? It was the jealousy in the quarreling. You know what that is? That's a lack. That's a lack of sincere love. That's a lack of agape love. It's disunity in the body. He said, because you're quarreling and, and, and backbiting and fighting, you're a mere infant in Christ. You're immature. You need to grow up. So going back to the question I posed in the beginning, are my relationships with other believers an effective measure of my spiritual maturity? I would say, yeah, absolutely. It's not the only measure, but it's a really good measure of our maturity. So how are your relationships with other believers? Are they healthy? Are they strained? Are they fractured, broken? What does that look like? Maybe you'd say, well, I have great relationships at work and around my neighborhood. It's just those Christians I can't seem to get along with. (laughs) Well, it's important to have good relationships at work. I wouldn't minimize that. But they're not the measure of your maturity. 
Your relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ is what God's talking about here. How are your church relationships? They're the ones that are one of the most important of all human relationships. Your church relationships. They're not on par with your neighbors and your coworkers and your sports buddies. They're not on par. Christian church relationships are more important. Why do I say that? Well, we're going to see next week that believers in relationship with one another are referred to as living stones, and they're joined together to form a house in which God dwells by His Spirit. That's something very, very unique. You can have great relationships with coworkers and build a great business and have a beautiful office, but God doesn't dwell in there by His Spirit. You can have great relationships with your neighbors and you can build a community center. But God doesn't dwell in that with his spirit. He dwells in the church. And I'm not speaking about the physical building, but the spiritual building. That's a dwelling place for God's spirit. And it's formed by the inner relationship of believers. It's, it's, it's extremely important. We'll look more at that next week. But the implications for this are for today also as we talk about individual relationships. We began by saying that people are relational beings by God's design, and we're more connected than ever, but we're also more and more relationally distant than ever. We have fewer genuine friendships. That shouldn't be true of us as followers of Christ. It should not be true of us. We should have deep, heartfelt loving relationships within the church. Now, some of you might say, but, but I have plenty of friends from work, school, the gym, my kids' sports teams. I got more friends than I need. I don't need any more relationships in the church. Well, I think there's a flaw in your thinking. You see, relationships in the church are more important because of the spiritual work that God does through them. I'm not saying get rid of the other relationships. We're to go into the world and transform it with the gospel. We need to have relationships. But deep, meaningful church relationships should be a priority. Have you ever thought about that? It should be a priority. Why? Because it's primarily through church relationships that we exercise our spiritual gifts for the building up of the body of Christ, and it's primarily within church relationships that we exercise the one another's of Scripture. This is where we grow up and mature and prepare ourselves to go out into the world with the gospel. So relationships within the church should be a priority. Now, we talked about what spiritual immaturity looks like in our relationships. What is spiritual we talked about which, uh, yeah, spiritual immaturity. What does spiritual maturity look like? I want to just use this point to wrap up this morning. What would it look like in our relationships to be spiritually mature? I've, I've put together some thoughts, and as we go through these, maybe just, just look at some of those that might apply to you. Note those, jot them down. Which ones do you need to work on? Because there's some in here I need to work on. I'm sure we all have some of those, so here we go. Believers who are, uh, who are spiritually mature are aware of their weaknesses and seek to correct them. We're self-aware. We're introspective. Believers who are spiritually mature are willing to receive correction from others. It hurts a little bit, but we need that. 
They're less concerned about what they get out of church and more concerned about what they have to offer through worship and godliness and service to others. That's a mature believer. They're accountable to spiritual authority. If you find somebody that is not willing to submit to spiritual authority, God-ordained spiritual authority, that's an immature believer. They're willing to sit, talk, and spend time with people who aren't their close friends. They're willing to build new relationships within the body. What else? Believers who are spiritually mature will seek out others to encourage and support. You don't wait for people to come to them. Who can I bring God's love to this morning? Who can I encourage? They'll know their spiritual gifts and talents and engage in using them. Do you know what your gifts are? And how are you using them? They're they're only good for one thing, the building up of the body of Christ. They will not tolerate gossip, negativity, or unhealthy criticism in themselves or in others. They will love others enough to gently correct, rebuke, or exhort them after having examined themselves. Take a look at the plank in our own eye first so we can see clearly to address the speck in our brother's eye. But they won't shy away from that. They'll lovingly confront someone. They'll desire to build others up and not tear them down. Think about the people around you. How can I build each one of them up? What could God say or do through me? And finally, they'll display authenticity in their relationships. That's what it's talking about, sincere love. It's real. It's not fake. We don't pretend to be something that we're not. This is what it looks like to have a sincere love for one another, to love one another deeply from the heart. And it's not optional for us as believers. This is God's command. We're commanded to do this. If we're not loving others in this way, we're not loving Christ. And the good news is that as he pours his love into us, he gives us the grace and he gives us the capacity to do this. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you took a simple Galilean man like Peter, a fisherman, and you changed him with your love. And you used him to reach out and change the hearts of others with your love flowing through him. God, I pray that you do the same in each one of us. So we ponder these words of yours in scripture. God, I pray that we would put them into practice, not just be hearers, but doers of the word. I pray that we would love our brothers and sisters. God, bind us together as a church in Christian love and in unity, despite the chaos going around in the world outside. Lord, when we see that, might we love one another more than ever? And might we do so for your kingdom and your glory? And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.